Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. As you know, we put in a ton of time and effort to make each of our shows as valuable as we can. If you find the information useful, please share this podcast with a friend by emailing it to them or sharing this on the social media site of your choice. Today we have just an awesome show for you as we tap into one of the most brilliant investors of all time, Sir John Templeton, founder of the Templeton Funds, which is now part of the Franklin Templeton family of funds. And to share his insight, we actually have the husband of his grandniece, Scott Phillips, who co-authored the book with Lauren Templeton, his wife, Investing the Templeton Way. He is also authoring a partial revision of William Proctor's 1983 biography of Sir John Templeton titled The Templeton Touch. So Scott not only brings us some great background, he also has had a personal relationship with Sir John Templeton and can share with us some of the insights that made John Templeton so successful. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me today. It's great to be here with you guys. I'll tell you what, we are so looking forward to this conversation, and Tony and I have been big fans of John Templeton, who's been known in the investment world for many, many years, one of the first people to invest in Japan after World War II, and we're looking forward to some of your insight. And maybe before we get started with some of our questions, just share with us your relationship with John Templeton. Sure. Well, I first met Sir John Templeton when I was actually engaged to my wife, Lauren Templeton. I was working as a young analyst at an investment bank in Atlanta called Robinson Humphrey. It's owned by SunTrust Bank now. And I remember sitting down on the back porch of what is now my in-law's house, and Sir John was seated across me, and he just looked at me and said, well, tell me about yourself. So I said, well, I'm a research analyst, and I work at Robinson Humphrey, this little investment bank. I do research on stocks. And he just looked at me, and his face lit up, and he said, I'm an analyst too. I just remember being so taken aback by just him being so relatable on that level. Because when he said that, in my mind, I was thinking, no, you're not an analyst, you're Sir John Templeton. I mean, everybody knows that you're an investment legend. But that's how he always thought of himself. He had that trademark humility. And it always came out when he was interfacing with individuals, no matter how much you knew or how little you knew about investing, he could find a way to connect with you and impart some of his investment wisdom or wisdom on other facets of life that he had gathered over the years. He was just a remarkable person in that regard. What do you think the key factors were that led Sir John Templeton sustained investment success over such a long period of time? That's really the most important question because there's so many people, and I will say right off the bat, he was a brilliant man. He was blessed with certain intellectual capabilities. He had a photographic memory, for one. He read voraciously. He read constantly. But you know what? There are actually a lot of people like that on Wall Street, and they work really hard, and they put in the 70- and 80-hour weeks, and you don't see them achieve such a superior track record over time. And I say over time, I mean, in Sir John's case, it was 40, 50 years that he beat the market, and that's very rare. And so it begs the question, what is different about him versus all these other people? And that's what's so wonderful about this book, The Templeton Touch, which I was asked to make a contribution to with these interviews of people that worked with Sir John, like Jim Rogers and Julian Robertson and Michael Price. And they all brought these items up in their discussions as well. It's those certain intangibles. It's the self-reliance. It's the patience. It's the optimism. It's the ability to think long-term. And that all sounds so simple and all sounds 
Kalink, you've heard it before, but the number of people who can actually incorporate that into their investment practice and their methodologies are very few and far between. And I think those are some of the key differences. It's those personality traits. It's how hard he worked at cultivating certain aspects of investing along these lines. Because although he was endowed with a number of these abilities, the intellectual abilities, he's also just kind of a calm person. But still, he worked really hard at cultivating these things. And I think the ability to go against the crowd ultimately is what really defined him and what people remember most of John Templeton as an investor. And he was one of the best. And you've conducted over 20 interviews with a host of world-famous investors. And what were their key insights into Sir John and more generally the key towards generating returns well in excess of what the general market was doing? Right. Well, there are a couple of things. One of the key things that kept coming up over and over and over were, yeah, they were all very much impressed with what he could do as an investor and his skill set there. But really what kind of endeared him to all of these individuals interviewed in the book. And you have to bear in mind that you go back and you look at their impression of him was really formulated early on in their careers. We know them now, people like Jim Rogers and Julian Robertson, they've been at it for a long time now. But back then, you know, this is 30, 40 years ago. So they're a lot younger and more impressionable. And the thing that stuck out the most with them was his integrity. It really was. If you go through each interview, people like Mason Hawkins, Michael Price, they really noted his overall sense of integrity, how he's a very principled person. He was the person you sat down and saw sitting across the table from you was the same person you read about in the newspaper. There was no departure. There was no kind of public facade that you see in a lot of famous people these days. He was the real McCoy. He saved 50% of his income. He was a very thoughtful, even spiritually oriented person. He always had a great perspective on life and the importance of investing, but also the importance of being happy in life. And he thought that really the reason that he was so successful as an investor was that he had discovered what he described as his noble purpose in life. See, back when he was at Yale, he was a sophomore, he received a letter from his father, this is during the Great Depression, that said, you know, John, I actually cannot send even one more dollar towards your tuition. This depression is too great. It's much worse. It's more severe than any of us could have possibly imagined. And so he thought that that was a tremendous tragedy at the time. But what he found was, in his response to it, it made him work harder. He didn't want to give up on his dream. What he found was that he worked harder. He was able to gain some scholarships. He took on extra jobs. And the difference he needed to cover his tuition money, he actually won at the poker table. And so it's kind of a funny side to the story. But what he learned over that, what seemed like this great tragedy, was that he had certain gifts, intellectual gifts, relating to finance, investing, economics. And he thought that the best thing he could do with his life was to serve others in the world of financial matters, help people with financial decision-making. So to him, it was always orienting your skill set towards how you could be a service to other people. He always said that's what made him successful, that's what makes other people successful. It's not about increasing your own personal wealth. That follows when you tap into whatever it is you're really good at being cultivated into an act of generosity within the realm of business. For him, it was sharing those skill sets with investors. And that's what propelled him, and that's what other people saw in him as well. 
Are there any other key lessons that Sir John imparted on us in order to be successful as investors as well as in our personal lives? Yeah. One of the key lessons kind of relates back to the anecdote I just shared, which was simply that you can't get too negative. You can't let a near-term setback knock you off of your course. And so you need to be more long-term oriented, and you can't give in to near-term pressures. So I think as it relates to the market, that is deeply important matter for him because you have to realize we hear about, you know, he made all this money investing in Japan and he made all this money shorting technology stocks and he bought at the bottom of the U.S. market in 1982 when everyone was talking about the death of equities and he bought stocks in Korea following the Asian financial crisis. We just think that when we hear these things, oh, that was simple, you know, he went in and bought and everything just kind of took off from there, but it didn't. The reality is that you make these investments and you make a wager on the future, which requires being an optimist. Things don't go your way immediately. It's not like the stocks just turn up from there. In Japan in particular, he was investing in Japan in the late 1950s, and you really didn't see enthusiasm for Japanese stocks take off or people recognize what he had seen earlier on until the 1970s. So that tells you a lot of things. It tells you that you have to have a somewhat optimistic outlook in order to be an investor because the only way that you can get a bargain is to buy what other people are selling. And wherever you're going to find people selling, they're not too excited about what's going on in that stock or the market. So you have to be long-term oriented, you have to be optimistic, and you have to be patient. And I think the patience is another huge aspect of what made him successful. There was this psychological study conducted at Stanford back in the late 1960s. It was called the Marshmallow Test. And they lined up a bunch of children and they brought them in a room and they said, here's a marshmallow. You can either take this marshmallow now or you can wait five to ten minutes. I can't remember exactly what it was. And if you haven't had that marshmallow, we'll give you two. Well, the large majority of children took the marshmallow right in front of them. But a select handful didn't. They waited for the second marshmallow to come. And what the psychologists were fascinated with was that those people, they tracked them over the course of their lives into their adulthood, went on to become successful, earn higher incomes, they got advanced degrees, kind of the whole what you would imagine surrounds successful people. But I think there's an important lesson in there. Those people who have the ability to delay gratification, who can make a near-term sacrifice in hopes of a better future, are the ones who are going to be most geared towards being successful as investors, I think, over a long, sustainable period of time. What you were just describing in the stories of Sir John reminds me of one of the stories I heard, and that was he was being criticized as being a bottom feeder and an opportunist because he'd buy low, sell high. And I remember his answer was, no, we're accommodators. When people wanted to buy in the worst way and were willing to pay any price and there weren't any shares available to buy, he'd accommodate them and sell them his shares. And when people wanted to get rid of their shares and nobody was there to buy them, he would accommodate them and buy their shares. That was a story I heard early in my career, and it made a difference in helping you persevere and show a little patience. When you're buying things for the long term, you can't let the news of the day affect you. And that kind of brings us to the news of the day today. We're talking about fiscal cliffs. We're talking about sequesters. We're talking about budget deficits. We'll take a quick break and we come back. Let's dig a little deeper on some of the key economic virtues that underpin a prosperous society. So please stay tuned. I'm Leslie Bibb. 
Everything changed the day my mother received the awful call that there had been an accident and my father hadn't survived. Suddenly, she was faced with having to raise four girls on her own. But my mom's burden was lessened by my dad's thoughtfulness. His life insurance kept our family together and enabled us to carry on. My father loved us enough to expect the unexpected. Learn more at lifehappens.org, a public service message from the Nonprofit Life Foundation. Welcome back as we continue to meet with Scott Phillips. So Scott, share with us, what are some of the key economic virtues that underpin a prosperous society, and are they disappearing in the present day? There's no question that they are eroding. To what extent, I think, is kind of the big unknown. Let's back up and take this one step at a time. So what underpins a prosperous society? In Sir John's view, it was really simple. What you want are a large collection of people who are oriented towards entrepreneurial efforts because entrepreneurs are the individuals who take a look at the marketplace and use their creative skills. They use their minds to think up new goods and new services and meet the needs of others. And oftentimes, these needs that people would leave their lives better off, they don't even know they exist. So, I mean, where were we before Steve Jobs brought us the iPhone? Did anyone really conceive of a product that would tie so many people together in such a simple and intuitive manner? Or where were we before Henry Ford said, I'd like to build an automobile that serves every man, that every man can afford and it's reliable and it works? So look at the bits of progress or the pieces of progress that humanity experiences on the basis of these entrepreneurs. And that's the type of environment that you want in an economy. You want as many people as possible oriented towards serving others in the marketplace. And it's very difficult to do, even without government restrictions or regulations or distractions such as these kind of political dramas that we tend to crop up every, oh gosh, six to nine months or once every year, the distraction of possibly much higher inflation down the road. It's hard to make projections and plan a business when you're constantly distracted by those kind of accompanying factors. Ideally, you'd like to get those distractions out of the way so that people can use all of their creative efforts so they can pull together all of their resources so they'll be willing to work the nights and the weekends or take out a loan or pour all of their savings into a venture. Because otherwise, if you don't have people oriented in that manner towards serving others in society and creating new goods and services that leave our lives better, then you'll have eventually an economy that will begin to stagnate over time. Or at least you're pulling people out of the mix that could or should be out doing that. So you don't really know what you're giving up, but you know that you're giving it up and you want as many people as possible partaking in these activities, so to speak. Right. Scott, what do you think, maybe what comments might Sir John have on the current levels of debt in the economy and increasing levels of central government welfare? Well, I don't think there's any question that he would be worried about the current situation with the debt and the rate that we're taking it on. He was someone who his entire life was geared towards saving and investment. He thought on a more kind of tangible, almost spiritual level that taking on debt or getting overextended was a reflection on your integrity. That was part of his small town upbringing in Winchester, Tennessee. In a small town, everyone kind of knows each other's business. If you were someone who was constantly getting in 
over your head or borrowing to consume and you couldn't pay back on your debts. That was a reflection on your character, so to speak. And so when we see a government who seems to be completely oriented towards taking out increasing amounts of debt to pay for near-term consumption, really, at the end of the day, I think that that's alarming. And when you look at the overall levels of debt that are accumulating, it doesn't appear that it's going to be easy to pay back. And so he was someone who said, you have to meet your obligations. And this idea that a lot of people just shrug it off and say, oh, we're going to inflate our way out of it. Well, no, I mean, that's a reflection on your character and integrity as well. But then when you get back to the practical side of it, it's a very kind of dangerous situation there as well, because what you'll eventually have are too many people who are consumed with paying off debt and not getting on with their lives and doing some of the things that we talked about earlier regarding entrepreneurial efforts. You don't want an entire society who's at the risk of going bankrupt or experiencing some financial calamity. Back as early as 2001, he was talking about the public debt. And in 2005, he sent out a memo titled Financial Chaos, which he sent to all of his money managers at the time, which more or less lays out the entire kind of scope of what we lived through since that time. He talks about the peak of prosperity being behind us. This is, you know, back in 2005, well before, you know, the housing bubble, credit bubble burst. And he talks about the bailouts of Fannie and Freddie that are likely to come. It just goes on and on about personal bankruptcies and all these threats to society. And so I think he would look at the current situation and be very cautious regarding the fundamentals of the backdrop, for sure. Before we started our interview, I was talking about how people like John Templeton and Warren Buffett, who long-term are probably, I would almost guess, one and two in their lifetimes as far as what returns they were able to get sustainable. There's been a lot of flash in the pans through the years, but these guys did it year after year, decade after decade. When you look at it, you would think everybody in the world would copy them. I just think back in the 90s, they were kind of the laughing stock at the end of the decade because they didn't jump into the tech bubble because they didn't understand it. The fundamentals weren't there. Why is it that people aren't copying them? They've lived through and survived and thrived in all these difficult times. You'd think other people would be copying them. Yeah, and I think a lot of people set out and try to do that. If you just look at, let's just take Ben Graham as the example, because he's more or less paved the way for both of them. In many regards, Warren Buffett and John Templeton kind of cut their own path. But let's just look at this as the guiding light or guiding principles, since they both studied under Benjamin Graham. All of this information is readily available. All the track records are out there. Ben Graham wrote plenty of books on investing that anybody could pick up and read. And so I think that there's just that certain extra bit. It's those certain intangibles that I think both of those individuals share. I think that both of them have the patience. Both of them have that ability to remain calm or even do the opposite, get excited when bargains appear. And that just takes a special wiring almost. So there's certain innate qualities that they possess, but these are qualities that other individuals could employ on their own with enough practice or determination. That's certainly a large part of it, just those personal qualities, those things that they possess. That creates quite a dividing line, in my opinion. Well, the book, again, is The Templeton Touch, Investing the Templeton Way. At the end of the show, we'll definitely want you to share how people can get that. But when you were interviewing a collection of famous people and successful investors, are there any traits held in common among them as well as with Sir John? Yeah. What's really interesting about all of those individuals, and some of them almost in an eerie fashion reminded me of Sir John sitting down with them, like Michael Price, for instance. Just the personality and their demeanor was very similar. But if there's one trait 
that they all share in common. And there are probably several. But if there's one that stands out, they're all very passionate about investing, and they're always constantly trying to learn new things. And I think you'll find that that underpins success in almost any business endeavor, or really maybe even outside of business as well. Who are the innovators? Who are the people who are constantly trying to pick up new things and try to learn from everyone around them? Sir John had a saying that the people who have all the answers don't even understand the questions. And so he had a very particular habit of any time he sat down with an individual, whether it was an investment meeting or maybe he was getting a cab ride to the airport, he tried to learn from that person. He tried to see what made them tick, what he could pick up from them. And I think that's kind of a shocking insight when you get around these people because as someone who is not accomplished, everything that these people have in the investment industry or whatever the endeavor is, you think that they have all the answers. But in fact, they're just constantly looking for them themselves. And so I guess what I would boil that down to is the trait of humility and the trait of being a lifelong learner. Once you stop trying to learn, your fate is sealed to some degree. Discuss the importance of contrarian behavior in a market towards generating returns in excess of the market. How do you do that? Sir John had a very simple saying regarding that. He said that if you want to have better performance in the crowd, you must do things differently than the crowd. If you go out and buy Apple stock, you're going to have the same returns as everyone else who bought Apple stock. I mean, that's common sense. And so the way he approached it was he called himself a bargain hunter. He wanted to buy stocks trading at prices in the market that were not a fair representation of what the actual business was worth. So we often say trading less than their intrinsic value. And you measure intrinsic value on any number of different ways. There are several approaches, discounted cash flows, book values. But you get the idea that stock prices depart from what the business itself can be worth. So the best way to find those businesses where the price is too low in relation to what it's worth or to find what other people are selling, that's the only way that a stock can get depressed in price. You find what people are selling in the market. That is one clear example of how you behave differently than the crowd. You go and you limit your search for stocks to buy to stocks that are depressed in price. So you're going to naturally find yourself in markets that are out of favor. You're going to naturally find yourself in markets that people are completely ignoring. That's the best way to differentiate yourself and get returns that are different over time. And if you have a certain amount of skill or you're willing to outsource to other people who have those skills and just put money into the market, assuming that you found the mutual fund that you trust will do well over time or you found the certain money manager who's good at selecting stocks, you can just outsource that aspect of it to them. The simple premise is you have to do something different than everyone else if you want to have different returns. That's a great point. Sir John had described the importance of finding one's noble purpose as the key towards living a successful life. Just elaborate on that. Sure. He looked at himself and said, I have these certain skills. I think that at one time he mentioned he might have been interested in becoming a priest or doing some mission work. But what he recognized in himself was that he had what he thought was the quality of judgment. And he knew that he was relatively talented with numbers and math. He was a good student in economics. He graduated at the top of his class. So he thought that the best thing he could do with his life was orient himself towards serving others with his skill set. And that's what he focused on. That's what he put all of his effort into. He worked the nights and the weekends. He sat down with every single investor and helped them cultivate a long-term financial plan. This was before he exclusively ran mutual funds earlier in his career. 
he had that level of dedication that I think you find. And he thought that if everyone could do the same, if they could look within themselves and figure out where their talent is and then share that with the marketplace in some form or fashion, that they would be far more successful than if they were just oriented towards increasing creature comforts or getting a higher salary, so to speak. Now, Sir John commented frequently on the virtue of thrift. I think you mentioned earlier that he saved 50% of his income. This in a day and age where just a few years ago, Americans had a negative savings rate. To the broader significance to a virtuous society, what does this suggest to us about the present day and what do we need to do? We've tilted way too far over to the side of consumption and using credit. So what you really need, I think, for a healthy economy is you need a mix of savers and spenders, but you absolutely have to have savers. You need to have capital stockpiles that are able to be lent out by the banks and other financial institutions. So you create a very difficult backdrop for society to grow if everyone's spending and no one is saving. You need a far better mix of savers and spenders. Get a healthier mix there. For him, there are many facets to why he saved as much as he did. We talked earlier about sense of integrity and what that meant. But also, there's a really interesting anecdote. One of my wife's family members once asked Sir John, why do you save 50% of everything you make? You're so wealthy, you've done so well, you still save 50% of everything you make. That's so curious to me. And he said, the reason I do it is so that I'll be prepared for the opportunities. So he understood very well as an investor, and for lack of better words, a thoroughbred capitalist, that opportunities present themselves when least expected. And you have to have dry powder or money ready to go if you're going to take advantage of them. So there was also a very practical side to what he did as well. And he was always prepared for the next panic or crisis when it appeared. And he knew what he was going to do. He was going to buy stocks, appear cheap, and that's what he did. Humility is often described as one of Sir John's most important personal characteristics. Can you explain why this was so important towards leading his success as an investor, and what can we all learn from this as human beings? The role of humility is so important because it draws upon what we're discussing with being a lifelong learner. If you think you've already learned everything, then you're not going to be open to new ideas, and you're going to be, let's just say, somewhat arrogant, I guess, in your approach. In his mind, not only was this kind of an unattractive personality trait, but it was also a devastating backdrop to running or managing a business. Because as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, as a businessman or woman, you have to be oriented towards what's going on in the marketplace. You have to be taking care of your clients, your customers, what are their needs. You can't be sitting around thinking about how great you are and how you've already learned everything. The role of humility in business is very important in that regard, particularly if you want to have a business that will continue to service the needs of your customers and clients and grow over time. Well, we really appreciate you joining us today. And I'd like to wrap up with one last question. And that is, how does a boy from Tennessee get knighted in England? That's a really long journey, as you can imagine. Here's the basic rundown of his biography. This helps explain it. So from Winchester, Tennessee, he was able to attend Yale. Because of the setbacks during the Depression and his father couldn't support his tuition, he worked hard and Because he graduated at the top of his class, he got a Rhodes Scholarship, which took him over to Oxford University. And he studied over there and got a degree in law at Oxford. And then he traveled around the world following that with a friend of his on a very shoestring budget. And this really exposed his mind and all of his thoughts towards a world that was far larger 
than a small town in Tennessee. This is what propelled him to be a global investor and offer global investing to the masses through his mutual funds. And so later, when he thought he was retiring as an investor, he sold his investment council business. This is in 1968. The insurance firm that bought his business bought every single product except for one, and that was the Templeton Growth Fund. Because the Templeton Growth Fund was domiciled in Canada, they wouldn't purchase it. The reason for that was they thought it was disadvantageous for American investors. There was a special interest charge. Anyhow, he sold his business. He said, this is great. My wife and I, we've looked around all over the world for a different place to live, somewhere to spend the rest of our lives, a relaxing place. And so they chose the Bahamas. He moved to Nassau, Bahamas in 1968. He still had the Templeton Growth Fund, which had a little bit of his money and a few other investors who were close friends of his in it. He was in the Bahamas, and this is around the time that he created the Templeton Prize for Progress and Spirituality. It's the largest cash prize available in the world. It outpaced the Nobel Prizes. He designed it to be that way. Nassau was still a British colony at this point in time. The Queen recognized his efforts in philanthropy and how much money he had been given to progress and religion and spirituality and all the work he was trying to do there in a philanthropic sense. And so he was knighted by the Queen, and because he was in Nassau, that he couldn't actually get a dual citizenship for the U.K., the United States. So he said, well, I'm living in Nassau now, so I'll just be a British citizen. So that's how he was actually knighted. What a great exploration of a brilliant contributor to our world and our society for so many years. You almost wish somebody like that could live forever, really, with the wisdom. Just incredible. But I will tell you this, some definitely passed down to you as a compliment to you. So we appreciate that you spend some time with us today in educating our listeners on one of the most brilliant investment minds that we've certainly ever seen. Well, I wish somebody would come along and copy them. Let's get back to those fundamentals. Just share with our listeners how they can get access to the book, The Templeton Touch. Oh, sure. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also learn more about John Templeton at templetonpress.org. There are other writings about him and even by him in some cases. So those are the two resources that I would point out. Excellent. Scott, thanks for joining us today, and certainly good luck in your future endeavors. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us this week, and tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the real wealth process. And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your real wealth advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information will be helpful to a friend or family member, just click the Forward to a Friend button. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. We've got additional information and links in our show notes which you can click on to learn more. If you have any questions about any of the topics covered or would like to learn more, you can go to our website, www.myprisminsurance.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Call us at 951-243-2800 or email me directly at prob at myprisminsurance.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful week.